0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order And then we rank them from best to worst My
1: name's Sarah And I'm Ben
0: Thanks for listening to us today Ben, how you doing? I'm doing pretty
1: good The assembly of... The house? Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> Everything inside the house, really? New,
1: new Castle Scream scene. Yeah. Castle Scream scene. 2.0? Yeah. Um, Castle The scream Reckoning. Scene, Redux, yeah. Is going well. Um, I would describe, like, the kitchen and bathroom as being done. The bedroom and office as, like, 75% done. And the living room and dining room as being maybe 80 yeah like 60 to 80 percent done somewhere in that range yeah yeah so we're getting there we're getting there ladies and gentlemen
0: I got a haircut
1: yes you got your first sort of post COVID haircut
0: yeah the last haircut I got was right before quarantine because that's when I started a new job and six months later (laughs) yeah grew out the undercut yeah so now I have kind of like a Pixie tomboyish haircut.
1: Yeah, I think it looks like Yvonne Craig in like the late '60s when she played Barbara Gordon, or like Kess on Star Trek Voyager, but like season two cast, not season one cast,
0: and not like late season with like the curly hair.
1: Oh yeah, that's like season three cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like kind of a pixie 1960s pixie cut. I think is how I would describe it.
0: Yeah, so I really like it, and it was time for a change. I've had the undercut mohawk thing for
1: a very long time four
0: years yeah um but it does mean that now i
1: don't quite match our art that's right you've got the undercut in our podcast art yeah might be time to commission new art i don't know maybe i don't have that goatee anymore
0: that's true you have
1: quite the unruly
0: beard hey we have a new patron that's right
1: Thank you to Caroline Kittridge Faustine. Ooh, Faust! <laughs> who just joined up at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Thank you, Caroline.
0: Thank you! Is it Caroline or Caroline?
1: You can correct us on Twitter. <laughs> which of us was right? Caroline is how it's spelled. So would Carolyn. I So Caroline... In my head is, like, Carol Y-N. Yeah, and this is I-N-E, which would, to me, Line, be Caroline. Caroline. Yeah. yeah,
0: okay. Okay, well, thank you, Caroline. Uh, it's great to have another person on board the Scream Scene choo-choo train.
1: <laughs> All aboard.
0: What are we watching today?
1: Today, Sarah, we are watching The Mad Magician from 1954.
0: Is this mad as in, like...
1: I'm mad and angry. No, definitely mad is in, like, they laughed at me before, but wait till they see the murders I'm going to do. That kind of mad.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm hoping that there's an actual, like, saw someone in half thing on the <laughs> stage, and then it's, like, actually sawing someone in half. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's, that's not magic. That's just murder.
1: So, after the success of the release of House of Wax, uh, Columbia like many other studios, began cranking out 3D movies. Most of Columbia's 3D movies were westerns, because that was a genre the studio was already, like, well set up to do, although they also did produce 3D film noirs. Uh, Finally, however, they decided to hire Brian Foy away from his longtime position at Warner Brothers with an assignment to essentially duplicate House of Wax for Columbia. Foy would stay at Columbia for the remainder of the 1950s before returning again to Warner Brothers for his final two films in the early 1960s. He retired in 1963 and passed away in 1977.
0: You're describing him as if this is the last time we see him.
1: This is going to be the last Brian Foy picture we see, yeah.
0: Okay, so he goes on to do other 3D movies, just not
1: horror. He goes on to do other movies at Columbia... Uh, this is the last 3D movie he'll be involved in. Now, Foy engaged the services of Crane Wilbur, the writer of House of Wax, to pen the script for The Mad Magician and for star Vincent Price to come on board as well. So you can see that they're trying to replicate the earlier success like as close as they could, right? Bring in all the elements. Now, between... House of Wax and The Mad Magician Foy and Wilbur had worked on the film noir Crime Wave with House of Wax director Andre de Toth for Warner Brothers. Price, meanwhile, had appeared in the RKO 3D adventure film Dangerous Mission, as well as a cameo as Casanova in the Bob Hope comedy Casanova's Big Night. (laughs) Uh, Bob Hope plays, like, an average guy who, um tries to impersonate Casanova and, like, use Bob Hope his... and Vincent
0: Price look nothing alike, so that <laughs> impersonation is going terribly. Yeah, but,
1: like, Casanova lived in, like, the times before you could just Google someone's appearance, right? I'm just saying. Right. So, like, it's a whole scheme on his part, and then Vincent Price cameos as the real guy. Interesting fact about Vincent Price, he, you know, he's very famous for his voice. Mm-hmm. And if you think about his voice in House of Wax versus, say, like, his voice playing, like, Egghead on Batman, Um, you know, it's the same voice, but it's definitely, like, much more nasally later, like, in the 1960s, like, the classic Vincent Price voice we think of where it's like, ooh, Batman and Robin, I'm going to boil you alive kind of voice. Um, It has this very nasal quality, and that's because doing a fight scene for this movie... His nose was broken accidentally. Oh. Uh, which then like gave his voice a much more nasally uh tone after this. Do they
0: keep the shot in the movie?
1: I have no idea. We'll we'll have to see. I've never seen this movie. Okay. Yeah. To direct The Mad Magician, Foy got John Brom, who is not unfamiliar to us or to horror adjacent movies. Okay. Brahm was. So, so not the composer? No. No, that would make him very old, and also, (laughs) that's Brahms, not Brahm. Now, John Brahm was a German who came to America after Hitler's rise to power and began directing feature films in the 1930s. In 1942, he directed The Undying Monster. Yeah. Which we ultimately found to be more of a mystery movie than a horror movie. Okay. That's the one where it's like the guy's a werewolf, but it's more about like. The husband and wife, like, detective team, like, figuring out what's going oh, on. It's kind yeah. of like a. And
0: he transforms on screen before falling off the cliff.
1: Yes, it's kind of a Hound of the Baskervilles riff. Yeah. In 1944, he directed a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger that is pretty well regarded. Um, that some people call a horror movie, but I would definitely more class as a thriller, but definitely horror adjacent. The Mad Magician would be one of Brahms' last movies before transitioning to be primarily a television director. Okay. Cinematography here is the work of Bert Glennon, uh, who was one of the cinematographers on House of Wax and who had worked in Hollywood since the 1910s. Uh, His film work as a cinematographer includes the 1923 version of The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, John Ford's Stagecoach in 1939, for which he got an Oscar nomination. Damn. And uh, Rio Grande for John Ford in 1950. Uh, House of Wax, like I mentioned, in 1953. Like Brom, he would move to television after working on this movie. Now, this movie's cinematography gets um, a lot of praise among 3D enthusiasts, for doing less of the, like, coming-right-at-you stuff and more depth compositions. Okay.
0: Um, Yeah. More like the 3D that you see in Dial M for Murder versus House of Wax.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, Dial M for Murder's 3D is also a lot about putting, like, props and objects in the foreground between you and the actors. The Mad Magician uses depth compositions by shooting in deep focus the telephoto lens technique, um, popularized by Greg Toland for Citizen Kane, where everything is in focus from foreground all the way to background, Mm -hmm. um, which, uh, replicates how human eyes see.
0: So actually it's a little bit more like the invaders from Mars use of 3D.
1: Yes. Yeah. Where you're like going far into the background, right? The film uh, was distributed in four versions just due to the complicated
0: s- nature of it.
1: The, the state of theatrical exhibition at the time, actually, just in terms of like catering to theaters that had different capabilities. So there is a 3D widescreen version um, using the flat widescreen process I've described in earlier episodes that's basically just cropping out the top and bottom of the screen to produce a rectangular image. Then it was also distributed in a 3D square ratio, aspect ratio, um, so where you didn't have the mat. Then it was distributed in 2D widescreen and 2D square.
0: How do you make a 2D movie out of a 3D movie?
1: You basically use, like, one eye or the other.
0: Ah, okay. Right? You use just one of the prints. Yeah.
1: And this was done because you had... Some theaters that had 3D capability, some theaters had widescreen capability, you know, not all theaters could handle everything. Because we don't own a 3D TV, uh, we are watching the uh, 2D widescreen version, uh, I guess you could say. Now, the film is, however, in black and white, uh, unlike House of Wax, because Columbia sure as heck wasn't going to spring for 3D and widescreen and color. (laughs) Yeah. Outside of Vincent Price, the most famous performer in the cast is undoubtedly Ava Gabor. Oh. One of the three Hungarian Gabor sisters, um, who were all actress socialites. Uh, Ava was the youngest of the three and probably the best actress of the three, though her sister Zsa, Zsa was definitely the more famous for her like personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, these sisters were definitely like the sort of Paris Hilton's of their time in terms of like being almost more famous for being celebrities than famous for like anything they, they did. Right. Um, but Ava was definitely like the one who actually had the most talent. She was the first of the three to come to the U S at age 18 in 1937. And she began acting in films in the early 1940s performing a variety of bit parts through the 40s and 50s. So, she's not quite at the height of her fame here. However, by 1953, she had already been married two out of what would be a total of five times. And she was between husbands when she made this movie. Uh, of course, that doesn't hold a candle to Zsa, Zsa who was married a total of nine times. At this point in her career, she'd actually had her own TV show, for one season. Dang. The Ava Gabor show, which ran from 1953 to 1954, it only had one season, so this film would have come out, like, just after the show ended. A minor, uncredited role in this movie, Gus the Stagehand, is played by actor Corey Allen. Now, as an actor, he's best remembered as being Buzz in 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. Okay. Who's kind of like the antagonist to James Dean's character. Yeah. But he actually saw longer-lasting success when he turned to directing in the 1960s. He directed many, many television episodes in his career until his retirement in 1994, including Encounter at Farpoint, the premiere episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Cool. He would direct four further Next Generation episodes, as well as four episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And he passed away in 2010 at age 75. That's really cool. Yeah. The Mad Magician was released May 19th, 1954, and it was panned by critics who saw it as overly derivative of House of Wax, which was also panned by critics. Uh, It would be the last 3D film released by Columbia in the original 3D era. Um, By this point, the trend was kind of...
0: On its way out. On
1: its way out, yeah. It came out this year... This April on Blu ray from Indicator, which is a top notch UK based home video company that sort of specializes in releasing some of these like older uh, films that have kind of fallen by the wayside.
0: Yeah, we haven't talked about them before. No, they're
1: newish to the show. Um, I think maybe some of the movies we've watched have been released by them in the UK, but have had other releases in North America that I would have talked about instead. Um but yeah, they just came out with a Blu-ray of this uh this spring.
0: Nice. How handy for us. Yes. Well folks, uh hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the Mad Magician from nineteen fifty four, directed by Jean Brahm. John Brahm. John Brahm.
1: John Brahm. John Brahm. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back everyone to scream scene we just finished watching the mad magician from 1954 directed by john brahm what did you think sarah
0: i really liked this this was a lot of fun mm-hmm. vincent price was great as always yes yeah what did yeah. you think you
1: got to cultivate your vincent price crush
0: yes at one point he is basically in a blacksmith outfit and <laughs> that's all i'll say about that <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is a fun movie. I think I would recommend people look for it and watch it. It's a good, like, programmer. Mm -hmm. A good reminder that, like, even when making movies that were clearly, like, just for funsies, the, like, base level of competency in the Hollywood studio system means that, like, you know, the worst things in a movie like this are still, like, okay. Yeah. Right? Compared to Poverty Row or indie stuff or whatever, right?
0: Yeah, I think this is a very well made, fun movie.
1: Mm hmm. Let's talk about the storyline.
0: Sure. So we are introduced to Gallico the Great. Uh, I will say, seeing his poster, I thought it said Galileo the Great. Yes. Um, but I guess that's only like one letter off. Vincent Price is Don Galico. He is a magician, and this is his first headline show, so he's a little nervous. Uh, he has a few acts. One is impersonating um, some rival magicians, um, namely Rinaldi the Great, I think is... I
1: think he's the Great Rinaldi. Oh, the Great Rinaldi. Gallico the Great, uh, yeah.
0: And the show is culminating in this buzzsaw trick he has, where you know you have like this big saw that actually works and he like shows like see it cuts through wood and he brings in his assistant karen played by mary murphy um to be basically sawed in half well decapitated so yeah. i almost get my wish
1: right yeah
0: <laughs> but just as he is about to start sawing uh the curtain is brought down due to an injunction from businessman ross ormond Turns out this Ormond is Galico's employer at Illusions, Inc., where Galico was hired as like the person who comes up with like illusions and tricks that they can sell to magicians. Mm-hmm. And the contract is so airtight that anything that Galico creates is property of Illusion, Inc.
1: Yeah, this is uh, a very familiar story for anyone who... He's, like, familiar with, like, work-for-hire contracts, um, especially around, like, the mid-20th century.
0: Yeah. Oh, hey, the movie is set in, like, 1903-ish. Yes, yeah. Just, uh, should have said that earlier.
1: Yeah, it's copying the House of Wax turn-of-the-century setting.
0: Yeah. Um, so, because this covers anything Gallico creates that includes this buzzsaw trick, even though he made it on his off time. So Ormond is like, no, I own this. You can't perform it. Um, Karen's boyfriend, Detective Alan Bruce, is also there. He was there to see Karen's big break, and he confirms that, yeah, that's what this injunction says. The next day, Galco is at uh, Illusions, Inc. It's kind of like a warehouse where he has the buzzsaw trick. He's chatting with Alan, who is there, um, just to go through contract stuff, uh, and they're waiting for Karen to arrive. Um, Now, Alan has to leave. Karen's late, so he heads out. And just as he's leaving, Ormond and the great Rinaldi come in. So, Rinaldi is like, oh, fantastic, a new showstopper for my show, and just kind of like rubs that in a little bit. He leaves, and Ormond continues to rub this whole thing in Gallico's face, um, he knew from the beginning that what Gallico was going to be doing with, like, his own show and everything, and just, like, let Gallico do it so he could, like, stop him at that dramatic moment with the curtain coming down, just to, like, teach him a lesson. Now, Armand is a bit of a son of a bitch, um, in more ways than one, because, turns out, when he first met Galico, Galico had, like, a sideshow at, like, a circus or something. And his assistant was also his wife named Claire, played by Eva Gabor. And Claire ditched Galico to go with Armand because she is a bit of a gold digger. Yeah. She likes the money more than the man.
1: Galico's like, you took my innocent, beautiful wife and you corrupted her into this, like, materialist... Because she wanted, like, nice things I couldn't give her, and you could give her that. And rubbing it in even more from the fact that he, like, stole the dude's wife, he's like, no, Galico, she was always a gold digger. Like, she was always like that. Like, she was going to leave you no matter what, because now she's, you know, taking me for a ride.
0: Yeah, and just kind of smack-talking his own wife. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is kind of Galico's breaking point. He, he's like, you've taken everything from me, my ideas, my love, my passion, everything, and he kills Armand. First he goes to strangle him and then basically subdues him to getting into the buzzsaw trick and then brings the buzzsaw in closer and closer until he's fully decapitated.
1: It's dope. It's a good moment.
0: So, because this is during code times... There's no blood. So there's we, no cleanup.
1: <laughs> we never see the decapitated head.
0: That too. Um, we
1: just see the vessels that it's put into.
0: <laughs> so there's no blood to clean up, which is lucky because that's when Karen arrives, <laughs> uh, knocking at the door. Um, Galico, at this point, had just finished putting the body away uh, into like a place to be kept and put... Oman's head into a black bag, uh, like a briefcase bag. So Karen comes in. She's like, oh, I'm sorry I was running late. Oh, um, I'm supposed to meet Alan at this place for dinner. Okay, I'll head out there. Bye. But while she's there, she's carrying her own black bag. And wouldn't you know it, she puts it down and picks up the wrong black bag, the bag with the head, and heads on out. Mm-hmm. Now, to Gallico's credit, he realizes this, like, immediately, so he rushes to the restaurant where she and Alan are supposed to be having dinner. And they're like, oh, hey, you, you, you're you welcome to join us. He's like, no, where's the bag? There's something very precious of mine inside. And she's like, oh, I forgot it in the cab. And he's like, fuck. So they go and they get a cab who happened to see where that first one went. They track him down and he's like, oh, yeah, like I dropped it off at like, the lost and found at the police department, don't worry about it. <laughs> and Gallico's like, oh, I'm gonna worry about it. So he comes up with this plan to basically impersonate Ormond in order to like justify, like, oh that head's a prop, like don't worry about it, and also kind of like show like Ormond being around places after the point of when Gallico would have killed him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's using the same disguise techniques he did to, like, impersonate Rinaldi, and from that earlier performance, we know that, like, he basically has invented the, like, masks from the Mission Impossible movies that are, like, perfect, you know, like, skin-thin mm-hmm. replica, like, face masks, and he's also, like, a perfect mimic of voices.
0: Yeah. In terms of the movie, he's dubbed by the actors. Mm-hmm. But it is Price under the mask, and the masks that we see—it's pretty good.
1: Yeah, they're pretty darn good masks, and and yeah, it is a nice touch that like it's not just the other actors playing the parts; it's like Price under masks, like looking like these dudes. Yeah,
0: you can really tell mainly just because Price is very tall.
1: Yes, very <laughs> like... tall and broad-shouldered. <laughs> so
0: he comes up with this Armand mask, and the local college, um, is having, like, a bonfire because they beat this one university, whatever, it's football, whatever. So he takes Armand's body, dresses it up to be as if, like, it's, like, full of straw and puts it in the bonfire as, like, yeah, it, there's, like, the jersey of the opposing, the losing team on this guy. to are like, yes, we're, we're so great, and just burns up the body. Which, like, my guy, people would have smelt that.
1: Yeah. I mean, they do find bones in the, like, bonfire ashes the next morning. But, like, that's a, like, weird, unexplained mystery (laughs) that, like, someone will read about on crack.com, like, a hundred years later.
0: (laughs) As Ormond, Galico takes up a room at the residence of Alice Prentice, who is a murder mystery writer. Yeah. And has um, a doting husband.
1: Yeah, Frank, who is like, makes like he's like the boss sometimes, but definitely is not.
0: Mm-hmm. So Alice, she's pretty great, but she will mention that she's a murder mystery writer pretty much any chance she can. But so he rents a room there. Cool. Awesome. Then a wrench gets thrown into Gallico's plan because wife Claire is back in town. She's come looking for Ormond. He has stopped responding to her letters and presumably sending her money, so that's why she's here. And so she goes to see Galico first to see like, hey, do you know where he is? By the way, like, what if we cheated on him, hey? Like, yeah, I'm Ava Gabor. <laughs> because she can't find Ormond and Gallico isn't saying anything, she goes to the police, and that gets covered in a newspaper story. Now Ormond or rather Galco Azermond, when he went to the Prentices, he gave them a fake name, but the newspaper story includes a photo. And so Alice Prentice is like, huh, this kind of looks like a guy. So she gets in contact with Claire and Claire shows her a more recent photo. And she's like, yeah, absolutely. That's The guy who's renting her room, you go on up there. He'll be here later tonight, and you can surprise him. And don't worry, I'm sure that this marital spat is just a little rough patch. Everything will be fine.
1: What she actually says is the far more forbidding, don't worry, like things like this happen all the time in my novels, and they always turn out very interestingly. (laughs) That's true. Never tell people that something's going to be interesting.
0: So Claire surprises... Gallico as Armand when he comes in, and he tries to, like, hide his face, because if anyone's going to know the difference between the two men, it's the wife of, of both? both. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Claire's like, you're not Armand, you're Galico Gallico! And then she's like, ah, I see, you killed him. And she puts together the dots. And she's like, fantastic. I'm a wealthy woman now. Hey, why don't we get married again? I've always really liked you. This is wonderful. And Galico's like, I would never trust you again. And chokes her and kills her. But she is a screamer. Mm -hmm. So she causes a ruckus as she's murdered with Alice and Frank downstairs kind of snooping because, you know. They're They're snoops. They're snoops. So they come running upstairs and they see Armand, or who they think is Armand, running down the street away. So the police are looking for Armand. Galico is like in the clear. He's laughing, wiping his hands like everything's fine. Except it's 1903 and this new technology that looks at fingerprints is brand new. So Detective Allen, Karen's boyfriend, is on the case. And he's like, ah, but Ormond's fingerprints match the fingerprints of the person we found in the room. So, we know that Ormond is the killer.
1: It works out in Galico's favor, because where they, like, dusted for prints for Ormond is, like, where Galico, like, took all of Ormond's stuff to, like, make his Ormond disguise. So it's just Galico's prints twice. But they're like, yeah, this makes sense. It's definitely Ormond.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, Galico has come up with a new crematorium trick. Um, Basically, it's like an escape thing. It's a real crematorium, real fire. Um, Whatever goes in definitely gets, like, burned up. But he can escape with a fancy trap door thing. Uh, The rival magician Rinaldi, who had been Ormond's partner, he snoops in sees the trick, and he's like, perfect, I want this for my new act. Thanks, Galico. Galico's like, no, dude, this is mine. Our partnership is dissolved, because dude's gone. And Rinaldi's like, ah, but I knew Orman very well, and he's not the murdering type, and he's not the type to go out and rent a room, but you, you're the type to murder a woman, and you're the type to go out and rent a room and be on the sly. What would happen if uh, the detective started to look at other people's fingerprints, hmm? So maybe you'll give me that trick after all?
1: There's, like, a moment here where the movie becomes, like, the prestige. Where it's like, because Rinaldi's figured this out because he's also a magician, right? So it's like, he knows that Gallico can do the, like convincing mask thing and he's like thought it through and been like yeah this is definitely what happened right but he makes a fatal mistake
0: <laughs> and that's trying to blackmail a murderer
1: that's right you blackmail people for like sex scandals don't blackmail murderers they'll just
0: murder you mm-hmm. uh, which is what happens to Vinaldi <laughs> now it fades to black when Gallico goes towards him with his hands Um, But you can presume that he goes into the crematorium.
1: Yeah, I think we find that out later.
0: Yeah. So now, (laughs) Gallico is impersonating Rinaldi even at his own shows.
1: Right, because Rinaldi's already, like, booked at, like, a theater for a certain length of time, so if he's not showing up, it'll arouse suspicions.
0: (laughs) Alan, meanwhile, has come up with a new theory, and he's like, you know what, I want to get the fingerprints of everyone who's kind of involved in this case just to rule people out. So he goes to Rinaldi, who is actually Gallico right now, and he's like, hey, can I have your fingerprints? And Gallico, as Rinaldi, is like, fuck no, get out of my sight.
1: That's an invasion of privacy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Which is fair. You know, you don't have to give your fingerprints unless you've been booked.
1: Yeah, uh... Alan takes advantage, I think, of the fact that fingerprints are, like, a new technology and there's not a lot of, like, procedures built around them because he definitely just goes around breaking into people's homes to, like, get their fingerprints on the sly when they haven't given him permission, which, like, definitely would be inadmissible evidence these days. Yeah.
0: And that's what he does with Rinaldi. He breaks (laughs) into his dressing room um, and gets his fingerprints. And he's like, Rinaldi's fingerprints match Ormond's. They're the same person.
1: Meanwhile, I says Prentice has a theory of her own.
0: That's right. Alice, murder mystery writer Prentice, is also on the case, and she has a hunch. Now, during the inquest after Clary's murder, um, everyone was in, at the inquest, so Alice got to meet Galco, and she had a feeling, this hunch, that she had met him before, somewhere, somehow. Going off of this hunch, she's come up with the theory that Gallico impersonated Armand and killed Claire.
1: Yeah, she she manages to like be like, well, he's like a good illusionist, so what if he could make like a damn good mask?
0: Yeah. So she brings this to Alan, and Alan's like, ah, uh, I mean, I can follow up on this, but this is a little <laughs> wild. But I guess let's look into it. I need to get Gallico's fingerprints, anyways. Mm-hmm. They bring in Karen into the fold as well. Alan, Alice, and Karen go to a show of Rinaldi's. And Karen is looking at Rinaldi and she's like, "Mm, he does kind of look like Galico from this
1: this distance. And like Karen had worked in Galico's show when he had done the part of his act where he impersonated Rinaldi. So she's the one who knows what Galico as Rinaldi looks like as opposed to just Rinaldi.
0: Yeah. So she's like, you know what, it could be, but Galico is just so nice.
1: Yeah, such a nice guy.
0: He'd never murder me.
1: (laughs) And therefore never murder anyone else.
0: (laughs) So they come up with a plan. Alan and Alice are going to go to Galico's studio to try to get his fingerprints. Meanwhile, Karen is going to wait for Rinaldi after the show and delay him. So that way, if he is Galico, can kind of like delay him so they can get the fingerprints so karen's waiting rinaldi doesn't come out but gallico sure does (laughs) and she's like oh yeah i was just waiting to see rinaldi for a job and gallico's like yeah i also just came here to see rinaldi um to talk business but he he already left he left at the front um i can drive you home though and so she's kind of like trying to stall him Meanwhile, Alan and Alice are at the studio. He's getting fingerprints. She's snooping through his stuff and finds a collection of masks that are like clearly like for shows, but she does find Ormond's mask there. Karen gets dropped off, and she goes to try to get to a phone to warn them. But unfortunately, she was delayed, so by the time she calls, um, the phone is ringing just as Galico comes into the room. She makes a fatal mistake. She should have asked, like... Who am I speaking to? Right. But instead, as soon as someone says hello, she's like, Alan, he's coming. Get out of there. And he's like, ah, I will tell Alan that. And hangs up. So Karen knows that she's blown his cover. Um, So Alan steps out and he's like, yeah, I, I, uh, Rinaldi seemed very upset about his fingerprints, so I thought I would preemptively just try to get yours without asking, because I didn't want to have to go through the rigmarole in case you also were upset.
1: Right, because people don't have rights.
0: Yeah, um, and Galico knows what's going on, but goes like, oh yeah, totally, I'll give you my fingerprints, just kidding, pocha, karate chop.
1: Right, which is not something that he should be doing if he's, like, you know, an American in, like, 1903. Yeah, Um, but
0: he's doing, like, the William Shatner Star Trek karate chop into the neck. And he turns on the crematorium, and he's like, guess you gotta die now, Alan.
1: Yeah, um, Galico says cab" and, like, throws (laughs) Alan onto the (laughs) slab to burn him to death.
0: Now, the thing with the crematorium is it has to, like, heat up to a certain temperature in order for it to, like, combust or whatever. So while that's happening, Alice, who has not been discovered yet, goes out to the window. Karen ran over here, because she lives nearby, and she's like, fuck, what do I do? And Alice is like, bang on the door, distract him, and we'll try to figure this out. There's no time to get the police. So Karen's banging on the door. Um, Gallico's like, you can't come in! (laughs) Don't look, Mom! (laughs) But manages to distract Galico long enough for Alice to come and start to release Alan from the restraints. So there's a big fight ensuing. So Galico and Alan are punching each other. The girls are screaming out the window to try to get someone's attention to get the police involved. And through all of the hubbub, uh, Galico ends up on the slab. And heads on down to the lab. And by the lab, I mean the crematorium. He gets yeah. burned up. Next scene, we're at the police station. And Alice and Alan are chatting with the chief, finalizing the details of the case.
1: Yeah, and, you know, Alan's going to get a promotion. The chief's like, yeah, but, like, we should give a bunch of credit to, like, Prentice. And Alice is like, nah, nah, no, nah, no, no. that's that's fine. Just tell people to buy my new book.
0: Yeah. What's it called again? Like, M- murder um, is a must?
1: Murder is a must, yeah. The end. And and in my favorite detail, when Galico, as Ormond, as Jameson, rents the room from Alice for the first time, uh, her husband Frank is telling him about the plot of Murder is a Must, and it's like, oh yeah, it's about this dude who murders a guy, and then he has to murder someone else to cover it up, and then he has to murder that person to cover it up, and so on and so forth. And then at the end, of course, the murderer gets caught by the police, and of course... This is exactly what happens to Galico. Yeah. So.
0: So. <laughs> so this movie is a lot of fun. Um, the 3D is integrated pretty well. Yep. Yeah. Though it, it's still coming right at you. Like, yeah, there's still, still definitely like, some
1: moments where it's like, yep.
0: Yeah, like, let's, let's throw in this gimmick stuff. But it's not like, oh, let's visit a can-can show while you're grieving.
1: Yeah, they do uh, some yo-yo stuff. Yeah. That, like, is reminiscent of the ping pong ball stuff, but it is not for, like, the full, I don't know, half hour that that ping pong ball (laughs) stuff goes on in, like, House of Wax.
0: It's, like, 30 seconds Yeah, yeah. If
1: that. So Vincent Price is, of course, very good in this movie.
0: Yes, he's very fun. He's not just doing House of Wax again, which I really appreciated. He's really acting
1: here. Yeah, you can really see, like, Galico's... Psychology as this like put upon guy who you can kind of like keep piling things on, but only so far. Yeah. Right. And like Rinaldi kind of analyzes him as a guy whom like principle and like integrity matters to, and that is what makes him capable of being like a murderer because like he actually cares about these issues. And Rinaldi's like, you know, Armand would never have killed his wife over anything. He'd be like oh, you bitch, you're, you've made me angry. Go, we're getting a divorce. Like, get out of my sight. But he'd never, like, kill anyone over it, right? Because he's just, like, a, a moral businessman. Yeah. Not, like, someone who believes very strongly in, like, what they're doing, right? Yeah. So, yeah, like, Price does a really good job of, like, selling the psychology of this guy.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, he He's also just really quite fun getting to see him, like impersonate these people mm-hmm. and kind of do like acting as your character acting as a different character
1: yeah and he's kind of like he's got the most screen time yeah of anyone in this movie the majority of the movie is from his point of view like this is the style of murder mystery where it's about watching the detectives like how are they going to figure it out not who did it right because we're with Vincent Price, all the time. Mm -hmm. And that gives him, like, a lot more to do than in House of Wax, where he was kind of, you know, bound by the wheelchair and, like, in a mask because you weren't supposed to know the identity of the killer most of the time. Whereas, like, in this movie, we get to, like, hang around with him all the time, right?
0: Still in a mask.
1: I mean, (laughs) part of the time, yes. Yeah.
0: But it's, like, a mask that, like, isn't fully disfigured face and very thick like it's a thin mask so you can see his acting very well yeah the buzzsaw bit is very fun and thrilling yeah that's the
1: most intense element for sure yeah
0: yeah as he's like bringing it in to kill Ormond, i wanted some blood because you would expect some blood even just like the saw to get darker as it passes through flesh um, we don't get that.
1: Yeah, just some kind of blood spray would have been great.
0: Yeah, but I guess that would have just been too much for the sensors, or maybe the producers were like, you know,
1: mm, in three D with it coming right at you, eh. right? Like
0: they do so much for like like when he's sawing the wood to show that it's a real saw, um, the shavings are coming right at you. So I wanted that blood.
1: Ava Gabor is playing, like, exactly the role you would think Ava Gabor would be playing. Yeah. Like, she's, like, a rich socialite who is a gold digger and likes spending money and going to, like, fancy things and tooling around Europe. She's kind of playing, like, a parody of Zsa Zsa, really. (laughs) Um, But the thing I noticed the most was that she is, like, working to temper down her accent She still, like, has her accent, but, like, it's not the, like, wildly eccentric Gabor accent that, like, people think of. That, like, when she got famous enough that she could just speak her own voice. Like, she's trying really hard to be a little more just, like, flat American as much as she can.
0: And I think she does a fairly good job. She does. She does. Yeah, she doesn't have many scenes. I think just two. I guess three. But, um...
1: She quits herself well.
0: Yeah. Also acquitting herself well is Mary Murphy as Karen. She plays what she ha- is, has been given very well. Yeah,
1: she plays sweet and innocent and scared, and she does it very well, but that's all that the movie is asking of her.
0: Well, I liked that they show her as competent and confident. Like, with these tricks. Yeah, yeah. Because she's the one who has to do the release on the incinerator she's the one who is like getting put into the buzzsaw like but she's like not like showing scared she's like showing and she's not just like deadpan you know she's showing that she knows what she's doing she's competent
1: and when her boyfriend's like here's why galico's the murderer or whatever she doesn't need it explained to her because she's like an airhead ditz she needs it explained to her because like she's galico's friend and doesn't believe that he could be a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Patrick O'Neill, who plays Alan Bruce, uh, is nothing.
0: He's fine. He's doing what he needs to do.
1: He's, again, it's the, like, protagonist's problem in these movies where, like, they're just there. He's just there.
0: Yeah. Now, Lenita Lane. Right. As Alice, murder mystery writer, Prentiss... ...is awesome.
1: Yeah, we should have gotten, like, a whole series of Alice Prentice movies. Yeah, like, a Murder, She
0: Wrote style thing. She was great. The way she interacts with her husband is
1: fun. Yeah, it would have been, like, a fun shtick to keep up.
0: Yeah. Like, at one point, she's... So she's going to go to the police with this theory, and Frank is like, No, dear, I, I forbid it. And she's like, Oh, honey, let's go.
1: Yeah, like, that's like, sweet, no, dear. No, no. Yeah. Um, We don't have time for that.
0: (laughs) So she's a very, um, like, modern woman in this 1903
1: story, uh, which I think is also why it's a lot of fun. I think probably the reason why we didn't get a series of Alice Prentice movies is the same reason this was Columbia's last 3D film. Which is, like, to me that implies this didn't do as well as they would have wanted it to, right? Do you have numbers? I don't have numbers, but when, like, you're riding a trend and this is the last time you bother trying to l- ride that trend. It suggests that, like, the numbers came in and they said, oh, this trend isn't doing anything for us anymore, right?
0: Yeah. But, like, I think it's good.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, a fun movie. It reminds me a lot of John Brahms' earlier The Undying Monster. Yes. Um, just with, like, a lot of focus being placed on, like, a quirky detective who's seemingly intended for sequels that never come up.
0: yeah. Uh, that being said, so The Undying Monster, we determined it was not horror. This, I think, is horror.
1: Ooh, I disagree. Oh, interesting. A bit of a swap from our positions last week.
0: Yeah. So, uh, do we want to talk about that, or do you have more to say?
1: The only thing that, like, I wanted to bring up about this movie before we get to, like, the crux of it, which is, this movie's a really good example of, like, a weird moral paradox that crops up in movies of this era. So this is a horror as punishment kind of thing, which we first identified in Freaks, where the people who are being threatened with violence and murder are not our innocent protagonists, but are like assholes who deserve it.
0: Yeah, they had it coming.
1: Right. And this is the standard structure of, say, like the horror stories you would have found in like the Tales from the Crypt comics that would have been very popular around this period. And it's a style that I think became the norm after The Code because it's like you had this thing where evil always had to be punished and you had this thing where, like, you didn't want to have excessive violence in your movie. The censors would come down at you for violence. Like, the murder and killings of innocent people were, like, really unpleasant and could get you in a lot of trouble with the censors. But you could kind of get away with more grisly details and stuff if the people dying were bad yeah right because then they deserve it right and so you have the fact that in this movie it's kind of hard to see galico as a villain like yeah he tries to kill bruce at the end but that's after bruce has shown up and is like i'm gonna arrest you and you're gonna get the chair for this and like blah 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 right so he's he's acting in self-defense. It's like a, you know, crazy supervillain self-defense, but still. <laughs> um, whereas everybody else is people who have screwed him over and are, like, in the process of, like, gloating about how they will continue to screw him over in the future when he kills them, right? Like, they're all just smug assholes. So the paradox that you get is, you know, the the main concern of a lot of these, like, moralistic censorship movements is this idea that like people are impressionable and that like watching media like informs their own worldviews and morals and so like if you promoted murder as like a good thing to do people would go out and murder or like if you show innocent people being killed like that'll desensitize people to the murder of innocent people so that they don't care about it anymore and this kind of thing right so we're so concerned that we don't kill innocent people that we've made it so just bad guys get killed. So even though Galico is, like, you know, clearly a little off his rocker, you get this moral message that's probably the exact opposite of what the censors would want.
0: Which is it's okay to kill bad people.
1: Right, that murder's cool. Yeah. Right, like, that that like murder is a good way to solve your problems, basically. Like, yeah, he gets caught at the end, but it's like bad people deserve to die is the message, which is probably not what they were going for.
0: Yeah. And that leads into a whole bunch of bad things because who is considered bad can be changed, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure. Oh, that uh, homeless person is bad because he happens to be homeless. He's a drug addict. That's bad. So he's a bad person and deserves to be where he's at rather than having empathy and stuff. Right. Which is like, a pretty big leap, but you can kind of see how things trickle down to that.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. When you create a moral universe where the only reason why bad things happen to someone is because they deserved it, right? Then you enforce a message that says, well, if something bad has happened to someone, then they must be a bad person, right? Because you're reverse engineering that message from movies. Yeah. But yeah, um, I would love to hear Your arguments for why this is horror, because I disagree.
0: Okay. So, to me, this was going to be horror until Alice shows up, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, this was going to be horror, but then it became kind of a a muddled murder
1: mystery detective story Mm -hmm. mixed in. It has almost the opposite structure of last week's movie, *Fan of the Room Morgue, which starts with a focus on the detective and sort of ends with a focus on the killer.
0: Yeah yeah part of what muddles the horror further is the comedy that comes in with the murder mystery element mm-hmm. uh with frank and but to me, like because this has certain hallmarks of horror uh we have theremin right, which is fun we have Vincent Price, mm-hmm. we have a dude being decapitated mm-hmm. um a dude being incinerated on screen mm-hmm. it's to me is horror um though I will admit that I, I could be easily swayed because it is on the line.
1: Yeah. I think this movie for me falls into the category that you judged *Fan of the Room Morgue to be last week, which is like the murder mystery thriller category. There's a couple things about that for me. Like for one, there's the fact that like the buzzsaw murder, which is the most grisly horrifying thing happens at the start of the movie. And then we don't really get anything at that level at all, at least until the ending, but that's like the very end and that's happening to the killer, not to anyone else. That's true. Um, the element with only bad people getting killed, the problem with that is that none of those bad people are ever a point of view character for us. We only ever really see any of them, Rinaldi, Claire, Ormond, through Galico's eyes. To create horror, you need to empathize with... The victim. The victim, even if they're getting their just desserts or whatever, right? Like, in a lot of those Tales from the Crip stories where, like, someone gets grisly murdered at the end because they were an asshole, the person who gets grisly murdered at the end is our point-of-view character. Even in Freaks, that's true, right? Um, None of our, like, lead hero characters ever get threatened until Alan at the end, and he's getting threatened in, like, a very action hero way, where, sure. like, he has a big fist fight, the villain puts him in a death trap, and then he escapes from the death trap. Like, he's basically Batman, <laughs> right? Um, the other thing for me that kind of cinched this as being murder mystery, you know, I thought about, well, you know, it's not really a mystery, though, because we're with Gallagher the whole time. But another movie, released ten days after this one, oh, has basically the exact same structure, dial-in for murder.
0: Oh, Right? Where okay. we basically
1: see the murderer, we see how they have this plan for murder, and then that's the first half of the story, and we know everything that's going on, we know who the murderer is, we know what his deal was, and then the second half is seeing the intrepid characters unravel it and realize who the bad guy was and come and take him down. It's just that Dalin for Murder stars solely polite British people <laughs> who like... The idea of taking someone down is like, well, sir, I've figured out you're a murderer. Well, congratulations, detective. Take me to jail, please. As opposed to, like, <laughs> fist fights and incinerations.
0: Yeah, I would argue that Dial-In for Murder builds up the tension mm. a bit more. Yes. Because you get, like, here's the plan and here's what you're going to do
1: and all of that. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a Hitchcock it's, film. It's more of a thriller, but, like, Hitchcock is the master of thrillers.
0: Yeah. Um, Whereas this... Yeah, I think is more... I see your point about it being more murder mystery and stuff. So, cool, you've convinced me. Okay. Because, right. like, I was going to say that, like, we could compare this to Beast with Five Fingers, for a mm. good example. Because I was thinking of the comedy keeping it, especially at the end, kind of keeping it from being full horror. I, I don't really find the
1: comedy bothered me that much because yeah. it wasn't comedy that was meant to be, like, you know, in Beast of Five Fingers where it's like, Oh, this was goofy and dumb, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just that, like, Frank's funny. Yeah. But, yeah, I think when we talked about Phantom of the Rue Morgue being, like, an edge case or, like, an offshoot, you know, if you imagine that branch where you have, like, the main trunk of horror, and then we branch off at Phantom of the Rue Morgue, and Phantom of the Room maybe at, like, the first knuckle of that branch, the Mad Magician is at the next knuckle down, right?
0: Which is funny, because they were competing with each other.
1: Yes! Yep. And given that, like, Phantom of the Rue Morgue still hasn't seen any kind of, like, official home video release since the VHS days outside of, like, some streaming platforms in the U.S. and Europe, and The Mad Magician was just released on Blu-ray this spring, I don't know if I can really call a winner between the two, because they (laughs) both seem to have not done well. We aren't ranking this, if it's not horror, but if you had to pick... Like which you think is the better movie?
0: Uh, you know what? Like better movie or better horror?
1: Let's let's say both.
0: I think actually for both I would pick Phantom of the Rear Morgue. Yeah, because it's more of a roller coaster ride. Yes, because it has the continual bam out of the chimney. Yeah. Whereas as you pointed out, um, Mad Magician just has the buzz out at the beginning and then there's like like. There's some tension and stuff going on, but it's not the same kind of bam.
1: Yeah, the rest of Woman his Woman in a chimney. <laughs> the rest of his murders are like on the level of like Bella Lugosi in the original Dracula, where he like approaches. menacingly approaches someone and then we fade to black.
0: Yeah, which is fair because they don't want to give away like the incinerator thing or mm. or whatever. But yeah, cool, cool, cool.
1: So yeah, this is not going on the list. This will go on our miscellaneous, not applicable list. But uh, I think this was still a good movie. I think you, especially if you're a Vincent Price fan, should seek it out and and give it a whirl.
0: It's quite fun. You can see that miscellaneous list on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. That's where you'll also find our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking or anything on the miscellaneous list, you can reach us through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach us directly through email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or through Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
1: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and whatever your favorite podcatcher is by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or a review on services that allow you to do so. Uh, for example, doing so on Apple Podcasts like Feeds the Algorithm that like pumps our show up the charts so that people will see it. Uh, you can also help the show out by just sharing us online, being on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, uh, you know, saying, hey, this is a really cool show that I listen to and you should listen to it too. If you have the means, another great way that you can help support the show is by heading over to our Patreon. There you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Just like Caroline did. Yes. Patrons at the 5 and $10 level get access to uh, special bonus content. I, I wonder, like, would, like, a video tour of our new place be interesting to any of our patrons? <laughs> um, Maybe
0: once we have everything set up. Yeah. Um. But, you know, it's August. Yeah. Halloween's coming.
1: That's true. We're going to have special stuff like we do every year.
0: Yeah. And that stuff, I think, is going to be a bit more dear to people's hearts. Because there's not really going to be a
1: Halloween this year. Yeah, at least if you're a responsible, reasonable human being. Sure. I mean, we can still all get dressed up and, like, have fun looking at each other's, like, costumes over, like, Zoom meetings or whatever, but trick, that's really or going to be trick or treat. Yeah,
0: which I was really excited about because now we're in a house, and so I was like, "Oh, we can hand out like candy and comics." Right, because we
1: couldn't before because apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we have like our annual scream scene Halloween party that is gonna be the aforementioned, uh, you know, distanced, remote, online party. That's all right. Because um, it's always been a remote online Halloween party with our patrons.
0: Exactly. So, that's patreon.com slash Join now, see what happened in Halloween's past, and get ready for this upcoming Halloween. Yeah. So, what are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Well, Sarah, we are headed back to Mexico. Uh, we are watching La Bruya, that is, The Witch, from 1954, Ooh. by Cheno Urreta, the same director as The Resuscitated Monster.
0: This sounds really cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an interesting watch. I'm really excited for it.
0: Me too. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.